Amen. Before you're seated and as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word, turn to the people around you and say good morning. At this time, if you would, um, take out your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, take out the one that is in front of you there in the pew. Um, as I say every... No, I love that some of you are running, running back to your pew. That's okay. This is great. Like, whatever. He'll just keep talking. Um, you guys can keep talking, too. Uh, open up the Bible and uh, join me in James is where our reading is going to be today. Um, it's toward the end of the scriptures. Um, James chapter 1 beginning at verse 1, and as we share each week, if you don't have a Bible, if you can't find your Bible, if maybe the only Bible you own is the Bible that your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents gave you, and it looks like English, but it doesn't sound like English when you read it, take the one out in front of you and bring it home. It's our gift to you. Bring it back when you come. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything." If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of you have probably heard of this. Uh, it was a very popular study in the 1970s at Stanford University. It's called the Marshmallow Test. Anybody show of hands? You remember what that is? The Marshmallow Test? Some of you don't. Okay, so this is new. Um, it's a very simple test that they did where they would take a child... And they would place them in a room with a hidden camera for 15 minutes. And they placed one marshmallow in front of the child. And they told the child, about four years old, that if you don't eat the marshmallow in these 15 minutes, when I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow and you can eat both. But if you eat the first one in these 15 minutes, you will only get the first one and you won't get the second one. Um, here's, here's a clip that they did a number of years ago reenacting this study. Let's watch. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. 
But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> so just, just imagine, as I was watching that, I thought, okay, which one am I? I don't know. Maybe I should ask my wife. She could tell me which one would be me. In a 2012 TED Talk about instant gratification, economist Sylvia Barcelos began with a question that was based on this marshmallow test. She said, imagine that I'm offering you a snack, but it's one week from today, and you get to pick between two options. You can either have an apple, or you can have a chocolate bar. But it's one week from today. Which would you pick? So just think, what, how would you answer that? She said they did this study, and they learned that when given the choice for a snack one week from today, half of the people chose an apple. Why? Because the apple is the healthier choice. But then when they changed the question and said, no, now we're offering you a snack right now, guess what changed? Only two out of 10 people chose the apple. Eight out of 10 people chose the chocolate bar. If you look back at the Stanford study, what they learned was that two out of three of the kids ended up eating the first marshmallow before the 15 minutes were up and never got the second marshmallow. Why is all of that? Because nobody likes to wait, right? Nobody likes to suffer either. And you might not think about avoiding a marshmallow or a chocolate bar as suffering, but the premise is the same. When you're faced with a situation that causes you discomfort and pain, nobody wants that. And yet in our reading today, what we learn is that when we find ourselves in those situations, and in situations that are so much worse than just having to wait for a marshmallow, the author of James here tells us that we should consider Consider that situation joy. And that's a very fascinating and peculiar perspective that we probably should spend some time chewing on. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Today is the, the first Sunday in a new sermon series that we're working through um, in walking through the New Testament letter written by Jesus' brother, James. Now, James was a leader in the first generation church in Jerusalem. And what you'll see is that this first verse talks about how he is writing this letter to a very distributed and diverse body of Jewish Christians that are near and far. 
And what follows as you go through it is what some have referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. What that means is that these are, these are verses and short lessons that don't really teach us anything new. We find all these lessons in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and in what Jesus teaches. But all of it is short and concise and applicable. I've heard this book referred to as Christianity for Dummies. And I think it's a good, remember those yellow dummies books? Um, that you could consider it that as well. And so we dive into our first week about perseverance. Let me read the first few verses again. He says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Last time I preached on this passage, it's been a number of years now, but you may remember if you've been around for a while, I shared a story um, that has always kind of struck me as so meaningful by uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Maybe you've read some things by her. Um, Johnny's story is in 1967, she jumped into the Chesapeake Bay and had misjudged the depth of the water and emerged a quadriplegic. Um, she was severely injured and has spent the rest of her life to today in a wheelchair. And she's, she's written extensively about her trials in life and her physical limitations and how they have informed her experience as a devout follower of Christ. And she's been an inspiration to many for so many reasons. And one of them is the way that she articulates what we're learning here in James. She wrote this about wanting to take her wheelchair to heaven. This is what she said. She said, someday I hope that I can bring my wheelchair to heaven with me. And she said, I've read the Bible. I know that that's not biblically correct. But, but if, if I could have my wheelchair in heaven, I would love to have it next to me when I get this new glorified body that God has promised that I would receive. Because I would turn to Jesus and I would say to Jesus, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, when you, you said that in this world there will be trouble, you were right because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker that I was in that thing, the harder I had to lean on you. And the harder I had to lean on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And so Jesus, thank you for what you did in me and through me and for me in that wheelchair. But now that I'm in heaven, Jesus... You can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> Johnny is a picture of what we're reading here in James. She models what it looks like to choose joy in the midst of suffering. She understands the promise of heaven is the two marshmallows. And yet, unlike the marshmallow test, when it comes to our suffering, more often than not, it is not something we have a choice in, is it? Look again at verse 2. James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He does not say if you face trials. He does not say for those of you who face... You know, how many of us think oftentimes about other people in our lives, maybe the pictures you see on social media, whatever it might be, and you think they don't have trials like I do? How many of you have thought that before about somebody else? Show of hands. 
whenever you face trials. We all face trials. And if you look at this word trials in the Greek, it actually describes an unwelcome trial. This is something that is unplanned. This is unanticipated. This is not calculated endurance training in the gym. This is cancer. This is a layoff that comes out of nowhere. This is an unforeseen betrayal by somebody that you deeply love. It's the same word in the Greek in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the man who who got overcome by robbers? He uses the word to describe what happened to the man who was robbed in the same way here. The whole premise of a robbery is that it's unexpected. If you expect to be robbed, you will go a different way, right? And so it's an unexpected trial. What James is doing here is instructing us on how to respond to situations that we otherwise, if we had any control over it, we would avoid. Situations that we have no place else to turn from. And that's important to grasp. Because I think if we don't understand that, we're going to dismiss the rest of what James is telling us, especially to choose joy. Because the reality is that when these things happen to us, nobody feels joy, right? Nobody wants to choose joy, but if your suffering is happening beyond your control in suffering and trials, joy is a perspective and a gift. A perspective is a choice and a gift is a reminder that joy is something that comes from the presence of God himself. To choose joy is to choose the vantage point that you decide to look upon your suffering from. In other translations, I love how they translate this verse as an opportunity for great joy. Your trials, your suffering is an opportunity for great joy. Why? Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces, say it with me, perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, say it, mature and complete, not lacking anything. Friends, we don't rejoice in the suffering itself any more than a four-year-old rejoices in not being able to eat the marshmallow. Of course we want to eat the marshmallow. Of course we want to eat the chocolate bar. Of course we want to throw in a graham cracker and make life just one big s'more, right? But that's not the way life is. Nobody wants to suffer, but assuming that the suffering that we're talking about is involuntary or unavoidable, we can choose joy, James says, because it tests us, and in the testing produces in us perseverance or endurance. And yet I think about endurance, and I think even that in and of itself, if it's just for the sake of endurance, that isn't enough of a motivator either. If you sat a four-year-old down and you said, here's the thing, I'm going to give you one marshmallow, don't eat the marshmallow for 15 minutes, and the reward you're going to get is endurance. What four-year-old is going to be like, that's exciting. What 40-year-old is going to be like is that exciting, right? Nobody's going to be excited about that. We only endure because of the second marshmallow. We only endure because of what James says, that we will be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. We all want that. And yet, is there anybody in this room who is mature and complete and not lacking anything in their life right now? Is there anybody who's living in perfection today? 
I am glad you didn't raise your hand because we would have a conversation after and figure out how true that really is. I, I, more on this TED Talk is fascinating. Barcelos, this economist, she, she talked about this follow-up study that they did um, following up on all the research that they had done on the marshmallow test. And it was related to something called a commitment contract. Maybe you've heard of that term before. It's a very simple concept. They did a study where they took a group of people that were trying to quit smoking. And to motivate them to be able to quit smoking, what they did is they said, we're going to give you a chance to put a deposit into a savings account that's equivalent to how much it costs to buy a pack of cigarettes. And you could do this every week or whatever. And you put the money into that savings account. And after six months, they do a blood test. And if there's any nicotine in your blood, then the savings account goes away. You don't get any of that money. But if there isn't any nicotine in your blood, you get all of that money back. And here's what they learned. It wasn't perfect, but that reward was a more effective motivator for change than nicotine patches were. More people were able to stop smoking for longer because of the incentive that they were a part of. And I learned that, and I listened to that, and I thought, wow, this is the way humanity works. But here's how James is teaching us something even better. James teaches us something that involves faith. And what that means is that, first of all, I don't want to discount the fact that we are putting in deposits when we suffer, right? You yourself are losing something. You are paying involuntarily so, right? But, but you are investing. There's a part of you that is lost in suffering. But what James teaches us is that when we have our faith in God, we are reminded that we're not the only ones making a deposit for the future, but that God is also making a deposit on our behalf in the midst of that suffering. And his deposit goes infinitely beyond our own. You can look at so many examples of this throughout the Bible. One example is right in the first book in Genesis, the story of Joseph. You remember his story, right? He was young and he was sold into slavery by his brothers into a foreign land, Egypt. And years later, years and years later, God would use Joseph in that place. And he would use him to bless his brothers and his family and the entire region. And he was reunited with his brothers and with his father. And they were so scared that he was going to hold a grudge against them for selling him into slavery all those years ago. And here's what he's able to confidently say through faith in Genesis 50. He says, you sold me into slavery. You intended all of this to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. James is telling us the same thing. James is telling us that while the brokenness of this world causes suffering and is intended by the evil in this world to cause us harm, God's promise is that he will use it for good. It's not that he wants it. It's not that he's the one throwing it at you, but he promises to redeem it. And unlike Joseph, we know that God is doing good beyond our control and beyond even this world because we have words like that that come from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us, achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I've chewed on this passage many times over the years. 
Well, let me show you what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that our suffering is light and momentary on this side of eternity. It does not feel light. It does not feel momentary on this side of heaven. But on the other side and what God is willing to do for them and with them and through them, he promises us that in the eternal perspective they will be small because someday the pain will end and the ripple of God's love and glory is all that will go on forever. And because of that promise, James says that when you put your faith in that, you have to put your faith in what you can't see, right? This doesn't come naturally. But when we put our faith and trust in that truth, we can choose joy. It's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8. This informs the words that we sang in the opening hymn. Now, if we are children of God, that is, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Most of you know Queen Elizabeth II passed away this last week, and uh, a lot of the question around her death is, is what's going to become of, of the crown and, and, and of her position? And we know who the king is now and all of those things. Um, but, but what happens, and she's been reigning for decade after decade after decade. There's all of this power and influence. And then there's her estate, right? And I was reading one article. Um, people were asking just, what, what is the royal estate worth? Can you, can you even imagine what the royal estate is worth. They said just, just the royal estate itself, um, the, the things that belong to the crown is worth $28 billion. Um, and that doesn't include the queen's personal assets, which include things like her personal stamp collection. Have you ever heard of her personal stamp collection? It's worth $116 million. Just stamps, $116 million. And someone's going to inherit that. Someone is going to inherit all of that. And I was thinking about all of this as I'm thinking about Romans, and as I'm thinking about this imagery that we are given through the Apostle Paul. Paul reminds us that not unlike the royal family, that we are God's children. That God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that makes us co-heirs with his son Jesus in the heavenly realms. And what that means is the promise of God and our faith in him is that we will get out of this life the same thing the son Jesus got out of this life. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. Yes, Jesus suffered. But on the other side of his suffering is hope. This is fleshed out in Hebrews chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him through death. That he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. God produced something through Jesus' suffering. He saved the world. 
through Jesus' suffering. Our cross is empty because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He died there. That is where his suffering is, but it was not the end of the story. He rose from the grave. God used all of those things to save the world, and the promise is that God wants to produce something in your suffering and mine as well. And it's why in the face of trials, James can say confidently, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. By telling us to choose joy, he's reminding us that joy is not going to be the natural thing that we're going to want to feel. If it was, he wouldn't have to tell us to choose it. Jesus himself was not joyful when he was going to the cross. He was so nervous he sweat blood, right? He literally prayed to the Father and said, take this cup from me. Have you ever been suffering and you said, God, take this away? How many people have prayed that prayer before, right? You're in good company with Jesus. Jesus himself prayed that, but he also said, your will be done, You look at Hebrews, this is what it means when it says that Jesus prayed fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him. And it's for the same reason that James tells us to choose joy, because God wants to redeem our suffering and use it for good. And the promise is that he will. And he doesn't leave us to do that work alone, but James continues in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, if you read verses 6 through 8 without reading verse 5, it sounds extremely harsh. Martin Luther had a really hard time with this book because of how pointed it can sound in different ways. And if you don't read verse 5, then the rest of the verses sound pretty terrible. James and his scattered Jewish listeners would have listened to these words and undoubtedly when they heard words like somebody being tossed like a wave in the sea, they would have thought of the Sea of Galilee, right? And they would have imagined what that would have looked like. It was, it was an incredible place. It is an incredible place where, where waves are tossed by the wind that's created by the different terrain around the sea. And so they would have imagined that that's what suffering feels like. Have you ever been in the middle of an ocean or a lake in the middle of a storm? That's what James says it feels like to be in the midst of trials. Suffering tosses us around like a wave in the sea. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we remember that that isn't the only thing that happens in the middle of storms on the Sea of Galilee, but you might remember the story from the Gospels. Do you remember the disciple Peter? What did he do on the water? He walked. He walked on the sea in the midst of the storm. The promise of God is not that we will avoid suffering but that when the wind and the waves come in the form of our trials and our suffering, the promise of God is that they will not overcome us. That as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will walk on water. I'll leave you with this. Just just yesterday, this church was full. 
We had a wedding celebration here at St. John's. Sarah Johnson, Ted and Kareen Johnson's uh, daughter, um, Barb Welko's granddaughter, uh, many of you know the family, and her now husband, John Olson, were married here. And in the ceremony, as they gathered together to, to express their love, they expressed this commitment that has been forged in experiences of joy, but also some pretty difficult trials and experiences of suffering, namely that they were both in a very serious car accident just two and a half years into their young dating relationship. And if some of you have been around for a while, you might remember that too because they shared the testimony of that experience here at church shortly after it happened. If you ask them about that experience, they would never, ever say that they would choose to go through that again or wish that upon anybody else. But they also told me as we met in preparation for their wedding that it was that experience that forever changed them and forged the love that has now brought them together as husband and wife. They learned lessons very early on not to sweat the small stuff, to appreciate just how precious and fragile life is. These are hard lessons for two people that haven't even turned 30 yet. Lessons learned in suffering but lessons that are also celebrated in joy as God used them yesterday to bring these two people together as husband and wife. Friends, heaven is described in scripture as a marriage feast. The promise is that the same is true for us eternally in our relationship with God. The hope of God is that while we will have trouble in this world, while we might never on this side of eternity understand why, when we give it to Jesus and fix our eyes on him, every pain and every suffering and every trial will be used for good until one day we will not need that endurance anymore. Because in the presence of Jesus, Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things will pass away. It will be Jesus himself that will send every trial, every suffering, every addiction, every betrayal, every cancer, every car accident until the only thing that eternally remains is the love of God that has carried us through it and the perseverance that he created in us when we choose joy in the midst of suffering. And so would you join me now as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you that you are with us in the joys of life and in the depths of our pain and our trials and our suffering. God, I know that as we gather together in this place, each and every one of us brings to this wisdom that you have brought before us, our own experiences of situations that have come upon us that we would choose not to go through. Maybe that we're going through right now trials and suffering where the last thing that we want to do is feel joy. 
And so, God, I pray that you would give us, through our faith, the strength to choose joy. To choose joy as an opportunity to see that you are with us. That you are with us when we hurt. That you are with us in our pain. And that you promise us that the worst thing that can happen to us is never the last thing. Because the last thing is redemption and resurrection. Just as it was for you, Jesus, we inherit that salvation as we put our faith and trust in you. And we know that eternally our souls are secure in you. That is the promise of faith. That is the promise that's bestowed upon us in our baptism. That is the promise that there is nothing we can do. There is neither height nor depth. There is nothing that can get in the way of your love for us. But there are a thousand little ways in which we can be reminded of that truth. And that is every day that we face trials and suffering and difficulty. And you call us to choose joy, knowing that in the midst of that, you are holding us together, giving us the faith to walk on water, and reminding us that you are not finished yet. It is in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.